Tonight we take a look at, a, at the book called Lamentations. Lamentations, a lament. To weep, to suffer, to cry, to complain. If you lament. Like folk music, you will hear some lamenting. A song called Patty's Lament from the perspective of an Irishman that comes over during the Civil War and uh, has to go to war and fight for Lincoln. And the song is Patty's Lament. Look it up sometime. Uh, you might get addicted to it. That and sea shanties. I like them too. Lament. You know what lament means, to lament over something. Tonight we're going to talk about suffering and why would we have a book in the Bible that is dedicated to nothing more than talking about suffering. Let's pray and find out. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our hearts, that you would call us close, that you would make us joyful in the Lord. We pray that you make us strong in the word and strong in love, that the two go together. So help us to walk like that. Help us to, to see suffering as something you've given us and then how we can reflect your glory in it. Pray you help us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Moments in suffering become turning points in history. If you think anything about history, you like history at all, you really don't have to look back very far from a historical perspective. It's suffering that turns the, the head of history. I heard out in the lobby today, somebody said this to me, maybe it was Casey Norkett, I don't know, but he said that, uh, or maybe it was Rick, let's bring Rick. Rick says everything, so let's put it on Rick. By the way, did Rick say something about the time last time, last Wednesday? Did he? What did he say? Yeah, all right. I'm going to end on, watch me. I'm going to end on time this time. 7.20 or 7.15 or something like that. He didn't. He long-winded. He's a little long-winded, like Kyler. He's real long-winded. But one of them said uh, that, that when, you get, when you turn 30, one of two things happen. You diverge. One of two things you turn 30, you either uh, start smoking or you start watching World War II documentaries. <laughs> One of the two. I don't know why. It didn't make any sense. I was like, try that joke somewhere else. I tried it out for him, so don't do that anymore. <laughs> if you like those kind of documentaries, you've seen some of the suffering that went on in World War II. I just finished a book called uh, On the Road to Surrender. The Road to Surrender, it's the story of how uh, the United States at the very end of World War II, came to the decision to drop the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And all of the, the intricate detail that went into thinking it through from Russia to, to Britain to the United States to Truman showing up when FDR is dead and him not knowing all that had happened, him on a little bit of information making a fateful decision. Curtis LeMay and him sending those bombers across Tokyo Bay flying low so they couldn't be detected and, and dropping firebombs on Tokyo. And, and the pictures of the people that suffered after Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And, and the, you, I mean, you've seen some of the images. And the, suffering, that suffering was part of the turning of, of history. We don't like to suffer. Nobody here likes to suffer. You like to suffer, you're a... Something's wrong with you, right? We like to prosper. We want to feel good. We want to be happy. We don't, we don't want to suffer. 
Even with uh, the seasons as they are, you, uh, seasonal, what's it called, effective? Yeah, it's conveniently the word for sad. Nobody likes that. We like for the springtime to come, the sun to come out. We want to prosper. This book is about suffering. And it is written during a time of suffering. It's good to read it uh, if you walk through suffering. Let's get some setting. Let's, uh, you guys have the outline? The setting is the first one? Yeah, let's get, let's get the setting. When is it set? In the year uh, in the history of the Bible, so it's in the year 588 and to 587 B.C. 588, 587 B.C., that is the time that the Babylonians have besieged Jerusalem. Besieged. They do that. We find this from the Chronicles. We see it in Jeremiah. They, they besieged Jerusalem for a year and a half. That's a long time to be under siege. And you hear the word siege, you don't really conjure up the right images. To be under siege is they've cut off all of the food supply. They've cut off the water. And the idea of siege warfare is you make the town starve and suffer, and then they give up. So they get their army around them. By the way, I, doing, I did that. It made me think of this. I was doing that funeral um, today. And I, maybe, of the 35 people there, maybe 11 phones went off. <laughs> I finally had to stop. I finally had to stop and say, look, okay, I'm going to be done here in a little bit. Can all of y'all, uh, I mean, it was really like an exercise. Like, everybody pull your phone out and let me show you where to turn it off. So they turned it off and then I went on <laughs> with the funeral. So uh, get, get in your mind, siege warfare. What is siege warfare? There's, there's starvation. So you have a town that's walled walled around the town, and the army comes in, surrounds the wall. Nothing can go in, nothing can come out, and you wait. The army on the outside of the wall waits on the people on the inside to starve to death. So with starvation, people get dehydrated. First they start eating the rats, and then they'll eat the pets. Then they'll eat all the horses, and then when all of that's gone, they start to cannibalize. You read that in the Bible, and so... Jeremiah, we'll get to who wrote it. This is written from an eyewitness of a man watching all of that happen in Jerusalem. He watched the, the temple be destroyed. When you go and read the King Solomon rise to power and he builds this elaborate temple. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you've seen the Temple Mount. This wonderful structure that would symbolize God meeting with people He's an eyewitness to that being destroyed, the, the palace that Solomon built. I mean, we, we don't really, uh, most of us don't really have a grasp on that kind of destruction. Like we've seen 9-11, but, but it feels really far away. The closest thing that you might have, if you've ever lived through a tornado or been in a community that's been wiped out from a tornado, or if you lived on the Gulf Coast, we were there for several years, and when a, when a hurricane comes through, if you've, if you've been to, if you went to New Orleans right after Katrina, and just the absolute devastation, the man who wrote this saw every bit of that. Uh, if, you, if you see the, um, there's so many good documentaries on World War II out there. If you've, if you've seen sort of some of the story of, of the Blitz in Britain, 
when the Germans would come in, the Luftwaffe, and drop bombs on Britain and civilian population and, and Churchill out there crawling over the rubble. That's the sort of thing that he's seeing. So what's the structure of Lamentations? Well, Lamentations is written in response to something like that. People wrote poems after 9-11. Lamentations is written in response to the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the palace, the destruction of the walls. What's the structure? Well, it's five chapters. So Lamentations is not a very long book, although it's longer than you think when you think five chapters. Ephesians, five chapters goes quickly. Lamentations, five chapters does not go quickly. So uh, the structure, it's the most structured and stylized book in the entire Old Testament. So there are five chapters, chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, they are all 22 verses long. And they are all an acrostic poem, each chapter. Chapter 1 is an acrostic poem. Chapter 2 is an acrostic poem. Chapter 4 is an acrostic poem. Those acrostic poems are 22 verses long, 22. The reason is that the Hebrew alphabet is 22 letters. So chapter 1 it comes through the acrostic, and each verse is a different letter all the way down. Chapter 2 is like that. So think A, B, C. Every verse starts with that letter, and the words in it start with that letter. I mean, think about the brain power it took to write like that. I can't even get a good sentence together sometimes. So you have chapter 1 is like that. Chapter 2 is like that. Chapter 4 is like that. Chapter 5 is not an acrostic. Chapter 5 is, is written in free verse, and chapter 5 is a prayer. Sometimes you may want to go back and take chapter 5. The whole thing is nothing but a prayer to God. It is a wonderful guide. You know, sometimes when you're, if you're reading the Bible and you're having your devotion, after you read the Bible and you go to pray, sometimes you're, uh, you're not sure exactly how to pray, and it's good to have a guide. Chapter 5 of Lamentation is a really good guide. What helped me last week was when Jesus uh, said to the blind man, what do you want me to do for you? For some reason, that stuck with me in my prayer time every day that week as I was studying for it. And that helped by, like, what do I want God to do? Sometimes, though, you need a, a lamenting prayer. Chapter 5 is a really good prayer. Okay, so chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, they're all acrostics. They're 22 verses. Chapter 5 is a, uh, it's a prayer. Chapter 3 is the most amazing structured chapter in the Bible. Chapter 3 is an acrostic. Chapter 3 is a triple acrostic. So you even see it, in, if you have the Bible, it's an English translations. You've got chapter 1 is 22 verses, chapter 2 is 22, chapter 4 is 22. Chapter 3 is 66 verses. And the triple acrostic uh, goes like this. I'll just do it in English. The first three verses start with an A. The line, first three lines start with A. The second three lines start with B. A, 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 B, 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 C, C, C. All the way down. So you have 22 verses and, or 22 letters done three times. That's how you get 66 verses. Chapter 3 is amazing. You don't, you don't notice that when you're reading it. 
We don't see it in English. And I wish that the, the translators would done, have done more to show us the structure, the thought, the process, the time, the effort. Like this is not just some frantic cry. This is not just blurting out things in pain. This is really thought out. And you have a model there for reading the Bible, for thinking it through, just even in its structure. Okay, so uh, let's talk about chapter 3 a little bit. Chapter 3, chapter 3 is the center of the book. So as, uh, as, the, as the structure would show us, so if you have one, two, four, five, three is so long. It's like a Christmas tree. Chapters one and two going up to the top where three is, and you have four and five going, going down. Chapter three is the center. A lot of times we like the, the, we want the climax at the end of the book, or the punch at the end of the book. Nope. Chapter three is where all the power is. Who's the author? Well, uh, I've said it a couple of times. It is commonly understood that the prophet Jeremiah he gets that whole weeping prophet thing. Uh, it's commonly understood that Jeremiah is the author of, of Lamentations. In fact, I think I could prove it to you. Uh, you can flip back a little bit. We've got some time. I mean, you, you don't want an hour lecture on five chapters in the Bible. Uh, so I, that's what I told Rick. I said, I, I think I can beat the time this time. I only have five chapters. He said I couldn't do it. If you pull back in the Bible to 2 Chronicles, Chapter 35, 2 Chronicles, chapter 35. 2 Chronicles 35, 25. And this is the, the most textual proof we have that it's Jeremiah. It says that Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah, and all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their lament to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. So, Jeremiah composed a lament for Josiah. Most would say this is what Lamentations is. Lamentations. So, think about how it's been used in, in uh, how it's been used with God's people. So, Lamentations... Um, although it was written after the destruction of the first temple. You got that? There's a timeline. It's going to be confusing. So the first temple destroyed in 587, 86. It's written after that. But there would be a second temple built. Remember Nehemiah and Ezra, they built a second temple, and the people are crying because it's not as great as the first temple. That second temple will be uh, destroyed by Rome, in A.D. 70, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, about the time of the disciples, they're dying out, and the temple is destroyed in Jerusalem, the second temple destroyed. And Lamentations, the Jews started using this book as an expression of grief, as an expression of crying out to God, and it still to this day is used, practicing Jews, to think about and look forward to the time when God will restore all that has been lost. It, but, but Lamentations is not just an expression of grief for grief's sake. Like sometimes people get caught up in sadness and worship sadness. 
you're sad for, the, for sadness sake. That's not what, there's a purpose behind it. I hear, I've heard people say, and maybe you've said this, and maybe this is true, but you, know, you just need a good cry. And my thought is there, there's no such thing as a good cry. Maybe you think that or not, I don't know. But, but Lamentations is not just a good cry. There's something else there. It's, it's here to help us, um, it's here to help us to cope. It, it's here to help us cope by reminding us of God's presence, of God's rule. I mean, there's enough people in this room, you know, suffering has an effect on it, does things to us. And it does really kind of one of two or three things. Suffering, um, you've known people like this. Suffering can harden you. I mean, you, you think about people that have been through, that, that came up in a home that wasn't, where there was no love. If you had an abusive father or if it was an alcoholic or, or, or wasn't there, or if something terrible happened traumatically, and you come through that suffering and you've met people that have just been hardened by life. Suffering has a way sometimes of making you, it's a protective mechanism, it makes you hard. And sometimes, um, sometimes it's the other way. Sometimes suffering is so devastating, so crippling, that you've known people that never come out of it. Like sometimes it does that. I was out there sharing a memorial today and... Um, Man, I, when I was in the seventh grade, my uh, cousin, first cousin named Lisa, was killed by a drunk driver. Um, and I can remember just the, my mom and my Aunt Shirley and how they cried at the, I mean, it was devastating. Her brother was driving. It was, a, I mean, it wrecked. But, but you know, my mom and dad come out, came out of it, and we went to church with them for a while just to have, be supportive. And, uh, but I remember... Uh, a few years back, me doing a funeral out there at Sharon Memorial and seeing my Aunt Shirley over there at Lisa's grave and seeing her just weeping. And I know that she and my uncle, they, they never came out of it. You know, sometimes suffering makes you hard. Sometimes it's so crippling you don't, you don't get out of it. There's a third option. Sometimes, and I, I think this is the best option. I think this is what... Lamentations about. Suffering makes you pliable. Makes you, makes you pliable in the hands of God. Make, makes the, the clay soft so he can mold you into what he desires you to be. Okay, with that in mind, I'd like to hijack an outline from someone I'll modify it a little bit, but I'm going to take this from a man named Mark Dever. How many are, are familiar with Mark Dever, Capitol Hill Baptist Church? Y'all know that name? He's written a lot of books for us. Uh, he, he does nine, what's called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. That was sort, sort of made him famous, and he's written a bunch of books since then. Oddly enough, uh, about two months ago, he started texting me every day, uh, praying for me. Every morning. He sends a prayer text to me every single day. He's now in Ireland and sent me one. It was his morning, and I got it about 1 o'clock in the morning, whenever he uh, sent it. And I thought, that's a really kind thing to do. I wonder if he knows that I'm hijacking his outline. That's what he's... <laughs> but I've given him credit for it. So here, here's uh, five, things, five things to do when you suffer. 
Here, five things. Let's start with number one. Number one, when suffering comes, confess your sin. Let's, let's go to the Bible. Uh, verses one and following from chapter one. Look at the desperate situation and the actual confessing of sin. He writes, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheek. Among all her lovers, she is none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They've become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile. Look at the, the call to confession in verse 5. Come down, verse 5. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. Come down to verse 8. Jerusalem has sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. Come down to verse 18 and 20. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you people and see my suffering. My young women and young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves in the house, it is like death. So, sufferings um, are a, a, they are a message to us. I'm not saying you should invite, you know, looking for the message, but when suffering comes, it's a message to us to remind us of our mortality, to remind us of our need, to remind us that there was once a perfect world where there was no pain, and sin entered in through Adam, that sin has affected all creation. That's why it rains on Sundays and Wednesday nights. Because creation has been affected by sin. It's suffering is a reminder we live in a fallen world. And you as a fallen man or woman, we are reminded to confess our, our sins. I had a good friend in Ireland named Brian Black. He preached for me several years ago. He came over here, just a great guy. He was a Presbyterian pastor. His wife, I may have told you about this, she was hit by a car. Did I tell you all that? She was hit by a car in a uh, car park is what he calls it. So I think it's a parking lot. And, uh, and it, it's created brain damage. She was in the hospital for about three months. And she's just coming out and she's starting to walk again. And hearing that, that fine man talk about the goodness and kindness of God through all the suffering is a reminder to me, and I hope it will be for you, to not be hardened and not be crippled, but let suffering be what God uses to make your heart soft. To, don't despise, don't despise the suffering. Don't waste the suffering. Let it be something to refine you. Let it be something to discipline you. Maybe God brings the suffering to humble I mean, you would be so prideful had you not gone through this. It's there to make you humble. When suffering comes, confess your sin. 
That's chapter 1. Let's go to chapter 2. When suffering comes, recognize our divine judge. When suffering comes. Suffering comes, we recognize there is, that God is wrathful, there is a divine judge. So come with me to chapter 2, and you'll read verses 1 through 8, and uh, notice how they remain under God's rule. Join me there in chapter 2. How the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. So the Babylonians came, but the writer saying, this is God doing this. He's cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob in his wrath. He has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. Verse 3, he has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. Verse 4, come down there. He has bent his bow like an enemy. Verse 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. Verse 6, he has laid waste. I mean, you get the idea. The Babylonians did this, the siege, but from the perspective of the writer, he's saying, this is is God ruling. And if you get to verse 8, let's read verse 8 to verse 14. Look at the terrible punishment. Verse 8. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and, and wall to rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. Her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Verse 14. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity. So, I mean, you read that and you think this is God's people. It's a man seeing it, what's happening to Jerusalem, God's chosen place where God meets with his people, and he's bringing this punishment on his people. This is God in control. They're, they're, recognize, they're, they're called to recognize God as the judge. You see it in verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He is thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. So when we suffer, it's good for us to remember that God has a good plan, that he is in charge. So if you're, reading, uh, if you're reading Lamentations, it's good to put over in the margin Romans chapter 8, verse 28. That God works together all things. God works all things for good. Those who love him are called according to his purpose. God works all things together. All things are not good. They're not good. All things are worked together. God works all things together for good. All things are not good. God works all things together for good. Lamentation. Suffering. It's, it's good to 
go to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and read that. Put that in a margin somewhere. Or to read Acts chapter 4 that speaks of the crucifixion of Jesus and how God brought that about. Evil people did it. God was in charge. The, the whole point of chapter 2 is reminding us that, that God is a judge, that he judges, that he judges sin. That uh, when, when, when you see images of a tsunami, ever seen some of the, the videos of the tsunami? It's terrible to watch. And you see that, and that is, think of it like this. How can that happen? If God is good, how does he let that? Don't think like that. Instead, think like this. God is so good to not have done that right there to the entire planet. To everybody. Because he would be just in doing so. The, the fact that he withholds. Like when we see terrible things happen, like a dam break or a tsunami, or if there's some storm that comes across, it, that, it's good to think like this. God has withheld that from all of creation. Because we all deserve that. Remember what Jesus told him when the tower in Siloam fell? And he said, um, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's good to, to make sure you don't get caught up in the, that, that terrible argument because that, that, that is not a good way to think about, the God, about God. It's not what the Bible teaches. All right, let's keep going. Let's skip chapter 3. We'll come back to it. Let's go to chapter 4. It's, it's the third one on your outline. <clears throat> when suffering comes, give special attention to the leaders, I, this was uncomfortable, uh, but it's in the text. I want to point it to you, point it out. Verses 1 through 12 of chapter 4, you'll find out that the priest had become untouchable. There's a terrible situation. You read verses 1 through 12 of chapter 4. You get to verse 13, through 13 14, and 15, and there's the cause. Why, why are the priests, the ones that are supposed to, Speak to God on behalf of the people and speak to the people on behalf of God. That's what a priest did. A priest spoke to God for the people, took their request to God, and then prophet, priest, would turn around, speak to the people on behalf of God. So what had they done? Well, verse 13, 14, 15. This was for their sins. The sins of her prophets, verse 13, verse 14, the iniquities of her priest who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives, wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. So that's the cause and you come down the page, what, verse 16, what is the responsibility? Recognize the, responsi the responsibility of spiritual leaders. Verse 16. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priest. No favor to the elders. So what is that? Let me see if I can translate it to today. What is our a pastor's responsibility, a leader in the home? 
to, to know and preach the gospel, know and teach or preach the gospel, to point people to Christ, to do ministry in the name of Jesus. And we live in a world that has churches that are preaching and teaching a false gospel. That's why I hate the prosperity gospel so much. A prosperity gospel that tells you this transactional um, if, if you have faith enough that God will provide more and more and abundant, He wants you to live in abundant, wants you to be healthy. If you're not healthy, then it's because you haven't believed enough. Jesus said, the faith of a mustard seed. Or I, I hate the, um, the pseudo-prosperity gospel because it's closer to the real thing. That uh, get churches like Baptist churches sometimes fall into this that will make it an easy believism that you can actually have Jesus as Savior and it not affect you, not be Lord. So you see that a lot of times, uh, walking an aisle, praying a prayer. It happens, I've been to funerals. Uh, been a, we were at a funeral one time, a lot of our staff. And, uh, and at the funeral, the person preaching the funeral said, I want you to close your eyes, bow your head and close your eyes, and if there's anyone here that is not a Christian, and you, and you want to receive Jesus right now, all you have to do is look at me. Well, Jacob Prince looked up. He's our, he's our student pastor at Harris Campus. He just, out of reflex, looked up. And he got counted as being saved that day. Brother, I see that. He counted him. So you see Jacob, it's like, man, praise the Lord, you need to be baptized. Tell him. But he got counted as someone, that, that is a false gospel. Because what happens is somebody thinks, okay, I'm covered now, and walk out of there because the pastor said, you're saved now. When in fact, that's why I'm, I'm going to do a little bit of a rant here, but I'll come back. That's why I'm against uh, spontaneous baptism. There's a lot, of, a lot of pressing in churches right now to do spontaneous baptisms where at the end of service you just say, anybody want to be baptized, you come forward. Come on down. And get the person there and have a brief conversation. And we've got clothes ready for you. You can be baptized today. Get them in there and get them out. And there's a, it's a false security. And then what happens is, do you understand the, um, uh, the concept of inoculation? Inoculation is you get a little bit and just enough to keep you from getting the real thing. That's a, that's a gospel inoculation. Where you have just enough, it keeps you from actually getting the gospel. And the hardest people to deal with, the hardest to convince and to, to say, man, you, just because that happened, there's not been something in your life that's, that's, that's uh, changed. That's a, it's a sin before the Lord, and it's, a, it's dishonoring to God. It cheapens the gospel. It hurts the church. It sends people to hell that think they're going to heaven. It's a terrible tragedy. And the Old Testament version of that is happening in Lamentations. And... Leaders should be held accountable. All right, let's get beyond that one. Let's go to another one. Let's get to another chapter. Number, number four on your outline. When suffering comes, when suffering comes, pray for the future. Pray for the future. Chapter five. Uh, chapter five is really just one long prayer. I won't read all of it. It's a, it's a great prayer, of course, but it's one long prayer. It, too, is 22 verses. Um, and as you read it, it ends with praise. I'll just I'll just start at the. I'll just start at verse fifteen and read down from there. 
to 22. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we've sinned. Our hearts have become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim from Mount Zion, which lies desolate. Jackals prowl over it. But you, Lord, see how it turns here? But you, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. This is a prayer. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore to us, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. I mean, the last prayer, the last part of this whole prayer is restore us. Let's see, I, I, I re, uh, went back into my mind. What are the things we can pray for? So I, I'm going to offer up six, six things. Pray. How do you pray? Ask, ask for help to endure temptations, trials, tragedies. That's what you have to have endurance for. Temptations, we get through it. Trials and tragedies. Ask for help. Ask God to help you. There's a second prayer. Number two. Ask for enough understanding. If you're, if you're suffering, you may not, you're not going to understand the whole thing. We, we tell this to people, you're going to go to heaven one day, and there you'll, it'll all make sense up there. It might not. There's no guarantee. There's no obligation that God has to say, hey, look, I just needed to explain everything to you. Here at the end. It may not make sense, but you can have it. So let's not take any comfort in that. What we, what we ask for is just enough. Just enough to get through. Be, be, be content with God giving you just enough. When you're suffering, <clears throat> ask God for grace to honor Him in it. So let's say you receive a cancer diagnosis and you start chemotherapy and, and radiation and it's really, it's, it's really strong and it, it's, it starts to sort of strip your body, there's going to be a tendency to fall off into depression and to ask why is this happening. Uh, and a good pr prayer is, God help me to honor you in it. And have you seen, maybe you've seen people like this that have just been so racked with whatever sickness is stealing them and have had such a great attitude. I've met people from time to time like that. And that then is this weird reflection. It, it makes me want to be like that. Like, how do they do it? And I know that it is God giving them the ability to walk through that. So uh, when you suffer, ask God for the grace to honor him in it. Um, when you suffer, here's another one. Number four, ask God to give you good enough sense to make good decisions. Sometimes when we're in the midst of terrible pain, we make really bad decisions. Ask God to help you make really good decisions. You don't, when you're in the, right in the throes of it, if you cannot, if you can get away from making life-changing decisions, do that. But if you can't, ask God, help me make good decisions. 
another prayer in suffering. Ask God to help you trust in future glory, to, to get a, uh, a mental idea and thought of heaven, future glory, to start thinking and, and take away the cliche of this is not our home and start thinking like that. It really actually isn't. Start thinking like a Christian about life and death. And then the last one, when we suffer, uh, ask God to help you be a witness, a witness when you suffer. Okay, so we've gotten four. We've done four chapters. We're one, two, four, five. Let's go back to the very climax of the book in chapter three. We'll end there. This is the fifth thing. When suffering comes, hope in God. Chapter three is the very center of the book. So when you read chapter 3, it's good to remember. Their situation didn't change. It didn't get better. It stayed bad. Their situation uh, is still, it's still terrible. But chapter 3 helps us with a couple of things. Let me back up. Right in the middle of chapter 3 is verse 22. Verse 22 tells us the steadfast love of the Lord. And y'all know, I mean, you know I had to end with this passage from Lamentations. This is the only passage anybody knows from Lamentations. But if you're going to know one passage, this is the one to know from Lamentations. The very center of the book, the situation has not changed, and we trust, we trust God's rock-solid love for you. Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. We, we don't just trust His rock-solid love, we trust his soul-saving mercy. The whole theme of last Sunday's sermon was mercy. And you hear that in verses 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every single morning. Tonight you'll get into bed, you may have a good night's sleep, you may not, but at some point you'll doze off, the alarm will go off, and you'll wake up. And when you wake up, there is, there is new mercy stacked up by your bed for you that God brought you there. And the mercy he brings that morning, he's put by the bed for you, is going to be enough to get you through. I want you to trust his soul-saving mercy. I want you to trust, verses 23, I want you to trust his life-giving promise. There's a promise in verse 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The faithfulness of God. Man, I, I want to just read a passage to you. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Not only that, we rejoice. We rejoice. In our sufferings, we know that suffering, this is Romans chapter 5, verses 3, 4, and 5. We know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Trust the life-giving promise. And then one last one I'll... End it with Lamentations. 
Trust his heart-changing hope. Hope. Chapter 3, verse 24. Let me read the whole thing. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. I'll just put on the end one more thing to trust. Finish out the chapter, verses, or at least part of it, from 25 to 32. We need to trust the process. Trust the process. There is a great plan God is working. He has laid out from the foundation of the world that he has not just for his creation, but for you individually. There is a process he is taking you through. And we trust the process. Verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when, he is, when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust, there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast him off forever. Though he causes grief, he will have compassion. That compassion will be according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Suffering is a difficult thing. But God is taking you through and making you into what he wants you to be through all of the suffering. I hope you'll find some hope in that as you go through the book of Lamentations. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, I pray for strength from your word by your spirit to the glory of your son Jesus. I pray you would help us to be people that not only claim Christ, but live for Christ, follow Christ. God, I pray for each person here and their families, those they're close to, that we might be a great representation of the good gospel of Jesus. Help us as we struggle through things. God, I pray for the men and women here that need their souls strengthened, that you would do that. We pray for those we know and love that are without Christ, that are suffering in what feels like soul darkness, we pray that you would awaken them to see the beauty of Christ. We pray for our children. We thank you for those that are pouring into our children and our students tonight. We pray that the word of God would take root. God, we pray you would find our church faithful, holding up the gospel of Jesus, pointing people to Christ. We ask that you would wake us up tomorrow morning and enough time to spend time with you and to worship personally as we practice for Sunday and God bring us together Sunday to lift up the name of Christ to encourage one another to worship you our living God we give you thanks in all things in Jesus name we pray amen thanks everybody